Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret." But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, there is much for us to consider, much for us to be confronted by, much that uh, is really hard to hear, uh, especially in a culture like ours. So God, I I pray that you would, through the power of your spirit, give us ears to hear our hearts that are eager for change and empowerment uh, to be able to receive that change. And God, in all of these things, no matter what's said uh, this morning, I pray that we would know that because of what Jesus has done, we are your beloved and that we have our forgiveness in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been hurt by a hurting person? I mean, of course you have, right? You may, maybe you've even heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people, right? You've probably heard that phrase before. And you've, you've certainly experienced it. You're, you've had those moments where you, you're receiving hurt from someone, and you know they're, just, they're acting out of their own place of hurt. But what if the opposite was also true? What would that mean for us and, and for, for our world? Well, according to Paul here, and I think this is the overarching theme. We've read a lot, right? There's a long section here, a lot of ideas covered. But I think, I think the opposite true is true is what Paul is trying to get at here. That Paul, Paul is telling us, as he begins chapter 5, that love people, love people. Loved people, love people. Those who are dearly loved, you know how dearly loved they are, are now free to love others in ways unimaginable. So Ephesians 5, verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God 
as beloved children. That you are God's beloved. So imitate him. And then everything else he says in this, this section follows right, right from that. That you are God's beloved, and so, so imitate him. So even just think about that. 20, 20 years ago, as I, as I stood at the altar uh, and watched as my beloved bride walked down to meet me, right, to join her life with mine, and she was radiant, and to think of the, the anticipation of that moment, right, the, the joy, the expectation, the beauty, the, all, of the, all of the things, right, in that moment, all, all the things that I felt, that's how God feels about you. You are his beloved. Or even, even 15 years ago, and then again 13 years ago, when I first saw David, and then first saw Eden. Like, I was, I was overwhelmed in that, that moment. My, my beloved children, all the things that I felt, right? The, the rush of, of, of loyalty, of, of a desire to protect and nurture and defend, do, do whatever I could to care for my kids. Like, all the things that I felt... God feels about you, because you are his beloved. It's who you are. Or, or that, that long, uh, long friendship, right? You haven't seen that friend for a really, really long time. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you finally get together, and, and it's like you've never been apart, right? And you laugh like old times. You tell, you tell stories of old times. You, you open up and share with one another because there's a sense of, of history and trust in that space. All the things that you feel in that moment, God feels about you because you are his beloved. So imitate him, Paul says. Loved people love people. And you, you know this is true, right? When, when I feel loved by Kelly. It frees me up to, to love her, right? And, and when my kids feel safe and, and secure in our love, it shapes who they are, and we feel this in our, in our friendships. All of these things shape us into who we are, and you are God's beloved. Let me read it again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this is the part where it starts to get a little bit tricky. It's like, okay, I'm God's beloved. I'll imitate him, right? But it gets a little bit harder here because, I mean, all of us, all of us here, we're, we're all pro-love, right? Anybody here anti-love? Anybody? Get out, right? Like, of course not. Like, everybody loves love. It's, it's, it's who we are. We all, we all love love. But here's the challenge. God's definition of love is sometimes different from our definition. And God's definition in this passage is Jesus, right? And if you want to know what love looks like, look at Jesus and Jesus sacrificed. And so what if our culture has a different definition of love? What if, what if we have so normalized certain things and called them good and they're so normal to us that we actually assume that they're loving, but they're not? I mean, even just think about that. Cultures do this all the time. We normalize certain things, uh, and then we just assume that they're fine and good and acceptable. And so, for example, if you lived in the first century and you didn't want your baby, like, you could, you could throw it away. You could literally take it out with the trash. That was, that was considered normal, acceptable human, human behavior. Or, or in the Middle Ages, right? If, if your people went to war uh, and you were to join them in war, like, the best part of war is raping, pillaging, and murdering, right? And so you would join in. Everybody was doing it. It was normal, acceptable human behavior. Or even, even in, our, in our history, right? 
If there were native people near your land and you wanted them off the land, right? There are easy pathways to do that. If you, if you needed cheap labor, right? There were slaves available. Like these were normalized behaviors. They were considered by most as acceptable human actions. Which should at least cause us to ask, what are the things that our culture considers good, acceptable, normal human behavior, maybe even defines as love, that are not the way God's beloved should act? let Let me say it another way. What are the things we define as love that God defines as sin? Sounds fun, right? You guys excited for this? Yeah. Uh, oh, man. It's heavy stuff. So uh, Ephesians 5. So if you, haven't, if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and do that. But let me, let me make a quick note on our series because we're out of order just a little bit today. So next Sunday, we've got a special guest with us. One of our ministry partners uh, is going to, to preach out of Ephesians 4, 28. And so if you're engaged in the form life or you're doing the journal, we're one week off, okay? So you just have to kind of mentally swap that. Uh, we'll go backwards next week just a tiny bit. Uh, But in our text today, right, 5, 1 through 21, a lot of texts, Paul shows us here that loved people love people. But he confronts our definition of love in three ways in particular. First, this is where we'll spend the majority of our time because it's just so hard, so difficult in our culture, right? First is that loved people love people more than their desires. Loved people love people more than their desires. Or, or in other words, like, loved people don't confuse their desires with love. Or sex with love. And we don't let our desires define who we are. And we talked about this a little bit last week, right? When we compared our, our strong desires and our, our deep desires. We talked about how our strong desires often end up defining us. Lust, greed, anger, envy, right? Because they're so strong. But those aren't our deep desires. Nobody wants to be those people, right? We want, we want our deep desires of faithfulness, integrity, love, generosity, like kindness. We want those to be who we are. And yet, culturally, our strong desires often rule the day. Especially when it comes to sex. And God has some pretty strong things to say about this. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, which is just his words, among the, the, the believers, right? Christians, right? All of us, right? Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Strong words, right? I mean, Paul's pretty fired up when he, when he gets here, right? So sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthy talk, all these things, Paul is saying, are the opposite of love. He's like, remember, remember you where he began, right? As God's beloved, imitate him. Don't do these things, right? All these things are the opposite of love. Instead of building up the community, which is everything we've been talking about for the last few weeks in Ephesians, right? Building up the community, the, the church, the family. These things tear it down. So don't, Paul says. But what does he mean and why? Well, well the Greek word here for sexual immorality is the word porneia which might sound a little bit familiar, right? Or more we get our word pornography. 
It's a broad term for, for any, any sexual sin, which the Bible defines as any sexual behavior outside of marriage. Any, any okay? Uh, and marriage also biblically is defined as one man and one woman for life, right? Anything outside that, Paul is saying is it's forbidden. It's sin. It shouldn't even be named among us. And so pornography includes, or porn, porneia includes pornography, includes lust, hooking up, sleeping with your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, living together unmarried, adultery, as well as homosexuality. Anybody else just want to go to lunch? Can we just, um, let's call it a day, right? The Bible very clearly calls these behaviors sin, which is the opposite of love. It may, it may feel like love, but dragging someone with you down a sinful path is not love. It's actually death. And it destroys the community, the church. And that, that really is what Paul is, is getting at here, right? This is telling believers, hey, you've not been Christians before, right? You've not gathered together in this way before. This is how we should act. He doesn't want it to destroy the community. I mean, just like imagine with me, right? If people in your small group started sleeping together, like, it's not going to be great. Or, or if we begin looking at one another with a desire to exploit each other, in other words, with lust, like, that's going to cause problems in, in this family, isn't it? And even if you only do those things with people outside of this room, it's still going to affect your relationships with people inside this room. And so Paul's saying, don't. Like, don't do that. It's, it's, too, it's too messy. It's going to damage what God has created in us as his people Loved people love people. And this, Paul is saying, this is not love. Instead of building up, this tears us down. And I know, like, that sounds ridiculous culturally, doesn't it? Because our culture has normalized these things. Love is love, people. And, and so we, we just, we tend to assume that the Bible is just, like, super out of date, right? That's kind of what we do. It's like, well, it's just, it's so outdated, right? Because, of course, our culture has finally arrived, Right? We, we have finally figured out the very best way to live, and we're all just so happy now, aren't we? Like, we, we don't, we don't uh, exploit one another. Uh, women and children are never abused. And we're all just so happy, right? Listen, the sexual revolution has overpromised and underdelivered big time. We're a mess. Like, we are reaping the consequences of decades or maybe, maybe not, okay, yeah, but, but Paul here, let's, let's be honest. Paul is just reinforcing his culture, right? His old-fashioned cultural values and pinning them on us. Of course Paul's anti-sex. But actually, that's, that's not true. Because the Roman Empire was even more free sex than we are. Pedophilia was acceptable. Homosexuality, prostitution, even rape in certain instances. If you were a man in the Roman Empire, especially if you had money, it was just assumed that you'd have concubines or slaves. So non-consensual, right? Or prostitutes. Or even a young boy or girl. Soldiers away at war would often take advantage of one another. This was just normal, acceptable human behavior for first century Roman men. Now, if you were a woman, you couldn't do any of these things. So you've got you to like step back and examine what Paul is doing here. He's, he's holding Christian men and Christian women to the same standard. 
which is unthinkable in that culture. I mean, frankly, it would have been deeply offensive to do that in that culture. Sometimes we wrongly believe that Paul was down on women, but this, this reveals the opposite. Paul had the nerve to hold men and women accountable to the same sexual standards. Again, that was radical for their culture. That was deeply offensive. Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, talks about this at length. He, he examines in this book, the entire book is about the, the differences uh, between the, Christ, the early church right, and the, um, and the world around them. He talks especially here about the, the Bible's, how the Bible's sex ethic was radically countercultural back then, just as it is today. So this, listen to what he says. He says. Paul labels these behaviors as sinful and completely off limits for believers. In doing so, I repeat, he asserted and reflected a stance diametrically opposed to the prevailing attitudes of the time. And he intended to distinguish sharply what should be the sexual behavior of believers, particularly males. So Paul treats men and women equally when it comes to sexual ethics. And this, this, is, this is important because this, this would have been offensive to their culture just as for different reasons, what Paul says is very offensive to our culture. But Paul's not interested in just lining up with whatever the culture tells us happens to be right and good. He's interested in what God wants for his people. And so if you, if you call the Bible old-fashioned in its sexual ethic, it really just means you haven't gone far enough back in history. And so we, we, think, we tend to think we're so progressive now in our view of sex, right? That we've shed off all the old-fashioned ideal, but that's not actually true. We've really just regressed back 2,000 years to a brutal culture that permitted a sexual free-for-all, including the gro- gross exploitation of women and children. Our culture is going backward to a primitive sex ethic, not a futuristic one. We're actually regressing, people. And it's hurting us. In fact, according to Rebecca McLaughlin, her outstanding book, Confronting Christianity, she, she looks at multiple studies that support this, that, that show how the sexual revolution has not only underdelivered, it has disproportionately hurt women. Listen to what she writes. She says, is it possible... That what women have gained in freedom and professional opportunity, many have lost in the sexual revolution that cloaked what many men wanted, commitment-free sex, under the mantle of liberating women. She goes on, and she describes an agnostic friend of hers who once had a sex-in-the-city lifestyle, that's how she describes it, uh, who felt like she had to, listen to what this friend said, suit up in impregnable emotional armor to sustain the lifestyle and grieve that no one had told her sooner. Why are girls not given this data in high school, she asked, of how it's actually been damaging, especially to women. Church, we're going backward, not forward. And when these behaviors invade our community, like invade the lives of believers, they hurt our ability to love one another. I mean, this, is, this is why pornography is not a victimless crime. Because not only does it provide fuel for human trafficking, right? Feeding the industry of modern-day slavery. It also shapes your brain. I mean, there, there are studies that show this. Like, it, it shapes your vein, brain to actually view people as objects of your own gratification and exploitation. Not just the screens, but the people sitting next to you, right? They are there for your exploitation and enjoyment. Which, by the way, is not love. 
It reduces your capacity for intimacy, for meaningful relationships, and for joy. None of that is victimless. And so Paul is saying it cannot happen here. It, it, will, it will damage all of us, right? Each of us. You see, God designed sex and marriage to show us that we are his beloved, right? It goes back to where we started in verse 1 of chapter 5. That that's, that's what this is meant to do for us. It's, it's meant to show us that we are God's beloved, to actually tell us the story of God's romance with his people. And this comes out even more when we get to the end of Ephesians chapter 5 in a couple weeks, that marriage is meant to be a kind of reenactment of God's love for us. And God is committed to his people. He doesn't exploit he doesn't take. He's not into one-night stands. He doesn't want multiple partners or partners who are the same as him. He wants his bride. And that's us. And when we mistreat God's gift of sex, we tell a lie about God's love. I mean, this is, this is why Paul says, these things can't even be named among us, right? Like, they should be so distant from our own personal experiences within the community. They shouldn't even be named here, right? There shouldn't even be a hint of sexual sin. Like, how could we, this is what Paul is getting at here, how could we, the beloved bride of God, tell lies about our husband with the way we, we exploit one another, the way we use sexuality? Sex is meant to be a good and beautiful thing. It's meant to tell God's story. It's meant to build intimacy and joy and commitment and in marriage. It is a place where we reenact that we are fully seen, fully known, fully desired, fully committed to, and fully loved. That we are God's beloved. And loved people love people more than our desires. Yeah, okay, Nathan, but it's really none of your business. Um, what I do in the dark when nobody's looking, right? Or, or maybe, maybe you wouldn't say that, right? Maybe, you, uh, maybe you'd say, oh, actually, okay, I, I get this. I understand what the Bible teaches about this. I understand why it's harmful to me and to others. And yet maybe you still just feel it's easier to keep it in the dark. Like there's so much shame and hurt and brokenness. All of us are sexually broken. There's not anybody in this room that isn't, right? All of us are. And so we would just prefer to push it and keep it in the dark. But look where, where Paul goes next. And again, this is so countercultural. Because here's, here's the second thing. Loved people love people more than privacy. More than privacy. Man, we're obsessed with privacy as a culture right now, aren't we? And I, I get it. Like, if I, think, if I think too much about it, like, I begin to freak out when I realize how much Google and Amazon and Apple know about me. Like, they know more about us than we know about ourselves. Have you ever, like, been shopping and be like, I didn't even know I wanted that, but they did, right? They knew it. And so they put it in front. Like, they know us. And I'm, I'm convinced that at one point, at some point, like one of them will destroy the world, right? I mean, we know that, right? It's prob probably going to be Amazon, if I just had to guess, um, which they just heard, I'm sure, right? So Amazon, I'm sorry. I trust you with my privacy, right? Yeah, we laugh, but like we know privacy is a big thing, isn't it? It's a big deal. I'm not minimizing the problem it is, but generally speaking, generally speaking, privacy is only an issue for those with something serious to hide. And loved people, the beloved of God, have nothing to hide. Because we are already fully known, seen, and accepted by the God who made us. So look, look where Paul goes next, right? He goes right to this, this spot, verse, verse 8. He says, for at one time you were darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead expose them. We are children of light, he says. I mean, what an incredible metaphor. Like the sun is our dad and the moon is our mom, right? They're our parents. And we can't help but shine, right? Like it's, it's just, it's who we are as God's beloved, which I think there's two implications of this. Two, two things in particular. First, this means we can shine light on others. He says that. Like don't let people hide in the dark. Those who are living in darkness, obviously we want to do that respectfully, humbly, lovingly. But when we see people we care about walking in darkness, especially people within the community, we help them see a little light. We shine a little light. It's what loved people do. Because we don't want people to destroy themselves or others, right? And we, under, we understand what it, how it affects all of us when people walk in darkness within the family of God. And Paul says, don't. Shine a little light on there. And the thing is, because you're God's beloved, you don't have to be afraid of their rejection. Again, you've got to be nice about it. Be respectful. Be gentle. But you are already fully known and loved. You don't, have to, you don't have to be afraid of them because you are God's beloved. And the second thing, right? The second thing, this also means that we can allow the light to shine in our own dark places. We don't have to be afraid. You are God's beloved. God already knows how dark your heart can be. He already knows how often you succumb to your strong desires instead of your deep desires. He knows all of that. And yet because of Jesus, you are still his beloved. No matter what you've done, no matter how many regrets you carry with you, how much shame you have in this area, right? No matter what it is, like, that you can be forgiven and healed through Jesus. And when we allow others to see us, to shine a little light in us, I mean, it's vulnerable, people, right? It's scary. But we're safe in God's love. And this can begin to free us from the shame that keeps us running back to those dark places in the first place. And so who who will you trust enough to let a little light shine in so that you can be free? So you can be set free from these areas. Loved people love people more than privacy. And then finally, finally, loved people love people enough to create a better community. To create a better community. Because ultimately, again, this is what Paul wants for us. This, this entire book is written around this. Who are the people that God brings together and says, figure it out. Like, do life together in honor to Jesus, right? This is what Paul wants for us. And so even when we get to verse 15, right? Let me, let me try to, I'll read it and then I'll try to explain a little bit what I think he's getting at here quickly. Verse 15, he says, look carefully. So it's all building, right? It goes from this kind of the sexual sin, the filthy talk, and all that covetousness to, to, to shining a light on it, and now to this, these like commands for the community. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
okay, what is, what is Paul getting at there, right? And how does this possibly connect to everything else that he said before? Well, I, I struggled with that as well. I, it was hard. I, I didn't know until I studied a little bit deeper, and I was especially helped by one scholar in particular, Timothy Gombas, in his book, The Drama of Ephesians. Because we tend to read the Bible, and we're just an individualist culture, and so we tend to think everything is individual, right? We tend to go that way, but it doesn't make sense to read this individualistically, given the context. And so instead, listen to what he says. He says, Paul has the entire church in mind here, and he is contrasting two sorts of community performances. They are not to act like their surrounding communities in Asia Minor, getting drunk and behaving foolishly. In contrast to being just another worldly community that pursues ungodly behaviors, the church is to be filled by the Spirit with the presence of God, a reality that will become manifest through community habits and practices. And so so instead instead of the old practices, like the old ways of gathering together, because people have been getting together, right? Hanging out for a long time, doing all kinds of things, right? Instead of doing it the way everybody else in your culture is doing it, Paul says, which, which would have, you know, he points out, would, could have included like heavy drinking, debauchery, which just disregards the need, needs of others. Uh, other, you know, evidence of like the practices of, of like ritual prostitution, of pagan worship, right? So it connects back to some of the sexuality things there. All of that would have happened commonly in that culture. Paul is saying our community, by contrast, should look very different than that. And so instead of being controlled by wine, we should be controlled by God's presence. Instead of filthy talk, we should encourage one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Instead of lust or covetousness, right, which desires to take, we should practice gratitude, he says. And instead of taking advantage of one another, we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because this is what loved people do. Loved people love people. And we need a community that reinforces that and reminds us who we are. And we need it all the time because we forget how loved we are, don't we? Right? I mean, think about that. We, we so quickly go back to thinking that we need to take in order to feel, right? And so we settle for sex over love or lust over intimacy. Or we feel unsafe and afraid, right? We, we don't want to feel exposed or vulnerable in front of others, and so we, we keep hiding in our shame in the dark, and we settle for isolation over vulnerability and community. Because we forget. You are God's beloved. So much so that he sent his son to rescue you. Dying across for all of your failures in all of these areas, right? For every, everything that we do wrong so that we can still enter into his kingdom, right? Forgiveness when we fail. He died and rose again so he could live with us forever, so we could always, always, always be his beloved. That you are the object of God's desire, his affection, his provision, his protection, his commitment. You are God's beloved. And if that's true, then we are truly free to love one another. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. God, even even just acknowledging the fact of how dearly loved we are, we struggle. And just assume that you're angry with us, you're grumpy with us, disappointed in us. And so I pray, first of all, that we together would receive and know once again your deep, deep love. That we are your beloved. 
God, I, I pray that as that continues to settle in to our lives over the next decades, we would be a people known for our love. Not, not the kind of love that our culture often says is the way to live, but a love that is radically categorized by who your son is and what he came to do. And so, God, I, I pray that you would um, shine lights into darkness. God, where some of us are hiding in our sin, would you, um, would you give us the grace to be found out? Or even better, to come to confess to you and to one another. And would you set us, set us free from those things? God, that this, this would be a community where we are set free together so that we may better love you and each other. And even as we come to this table, Lord Jesus, would you remind us once again the lengths that you have gone to love us, to care for us, and how much you desire us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.